Welcome to The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. You can find episode show notes, past episode archives, and listener discussions at our website, thenexttrack.com. And in between episodes, follow us on Twitter at NextTrackCast. You know, we've had other guests on the show, and I always ask, but what does a record label do? And they explain it to me, and I go, uh-huh, yeah, yeah. And then a week later, I'm like, but what does a record label do? Because you hear it in so many different kinds of contexts. It's sort of like you have to imagine what this record label is doing. Like, what, what is the record label part between me and, and the music? What is, what is it doing? And so I'm, I'm hopeful that since our guest today is a one-man record label, he will be able to tell us exactly what a record label does in order to get recorded music into the hands of consumers. So we'd like to welcome Simon Raynell, who runs the record label Another Tambro, located in Sheffield in my country, the UK. Simon, thanks for joining us. Pleasure. Now, to all regular listeners, if anything sounds different, Doug and I have new microphones and new positioning for our microphones, so we're going to try and get this right. Actually, the onus is on Doug when he edits to reprocess everything. But Simon, you're a sound guy, aren't you? Originally, so you should probably be producing this podcast. <laughs> I don't think so. I'm, a, I'm quite an old-fashioned sound guy, yes. I worked in television documentaries for a long, long time doing location sound recording. Um, and then about, well, about 15 years ago, I started getting pissed off, basically, with the quality of work. The quality of documentaries on UK TV was going down and down as reality TV took over. And I was grumbling about it all the time. And my partner said to me, you've got to do something different. This is silly. You're just you're getting bad tempered. And uh, and so I thought, well, what could I do? And um, I've always been a fan of experimental and contemporary music uh, since I was a teenager. Um, but it had always been a kind of private hobby up until then. But I just thought, well, I could start a small label, see how it goes. And do, I carry on doing the television work, but do a bit less and because, you know, kids were leaving home and I had the sort of possibility of surviving on less money. So that's what I did. And what's happened in the past 12 years is that basically the um, the music side has become far more full on. I mean, it, I don't earn a living from it. I still do it on a, you know, in my spare time basis, but uh, it's, it's very fulfilling and uh, satisfying for me whereas the television work has just petered off and off and off and I've let it go so now I still earn a little little bit of money for odd days work on television but uh, I'd rather live frugally and satisfied than just be grumpy and grumbling and rich <laughs> like it have been. So two interesting comments first of all I really don't like these first-person documentaries that you get in the UK. You get some sort of a star who goes around someplace and waxes poetic about this wonderful beach or these beautiful paintings. I would rather see the kind of documentary that is constructed by a director and an editor with a voiceover than this approach of having well-known people do documentaries. Is that part of what you don't like about the documentaries? Absolutely. The obsession with celebrities and things like that really, really got on my nerves. I and mean, for the first sort of 15 years, I was working in television and I was working on what you and I think of as documentaries. Um, and it was, you know, it was great. But uh, then I remember the first few times I had to deal with a presenter. It was completely foreign to me. But they, you know, now, as you say, everything has a presenter and it's just not my cup of tea at all. So, I mean, I could grumble about telly for ages, don't 
<laughs> yeah, that's the topic for another show. Second comment is most people, when they have a midlife crisis, they buy a sports car or they get a mistress. You started a record label. I find that kind of interesting. <laughs> Was there any hesitation to jump into this? What did you say about 15 years ago? So this is, this is the iPod era, but this wasn't the streaming era. No. How, how did you look at the music landscape at the time? We hadn't yet made that transition, that full transition to digital music. Yeah, there was there was there were still um, other CD labels around in the kind of corner of music that I'm interested in, um, and I basically I just asked people who were running those, and most of them were very helpful and obliging, and told me what it had to do. And uh, I didn't at that stage. I you know I don't think I've ever listened to a download or anything like that. It's just I'm of the wrong generation for that all that really let alone streaming etc etc you're so not I, that much older than doug and i are well, <laughs> we're close <laughs> but but anyway so I, I just launched into a kind of i suppose i imagined myself as the ideal consumer and and have geared everything towards that and obviously that's a diminishing audience because you know my children's generation don't use cds they uh, they would never buy one they would always stream or or one of them is into vinyl or whatever so i'm i'm aware that it's you know it's a decreasing audience but um on the other hand, the label's done well enough to break even, and hopefully that will continue for another few years until I retire. So How frequently do you have releases? Uh, just four times a year. I release uh, discs of, you know, three or four discs four times a year. And, but I've resolutely stuck with the, uh, as it were, old technology, low technology uh, end of things, because that's what I understand. And I've always liked this sense of kind of going and choosing a, a disc and having an object in your hand and um and liking the artwork and things like that that's that's part of the experience for me and you know there's still enough of us old duffers around to make it possible for me to carry on doing that at the moment since you are of the generation that still i'm sure has a fondness for vinyl discs as well um have you any plans to release anything on vinyl or are you strictly cd i'm strictly cd um i've thought about vinyl quite a few times but uh i suppose my experience of vinyl was that you know i had i had quite a large vinyl collection before cds came along and uh when cds came all these discs that i was most fond of that i played the vinyl played the vinyl played the vinyl until they were kind of old and scratchy and um indistinct suddenly i could get a fresh again i just thought that was so lovely that uh I, that's made me very, very fond of CDs format, and that fondness has maintained really. I don't, I don't, uh, and there are all kinds of complications. A lot of the music I like tend to centre around pieces that's quite long, and then you've got the problem if you go on vinyl about having to split them in half and so on and so forth. So, um, yeah, I've, I've thought about it, but decided to steer clear. And the other, the, of course, the other difficulty with vinyl is 80% of the people who buy CDs from me are abroad and the uh postage costs of sending vinyl internationally are just it's prohibitive so uh cd is a lot more manageable i often feel like cassandra in telling people about vinyl it's like sure it's great the first six times you play it but only us old people know yeah. 
that yeah. we've had these discs for yeah. 20, 30 years and we've worn the, the music out of yeah. them. Exactly. And it's like, it's just not a viable format for, you know, keeping the permanence of the recording. And, and all the hassles of tuning it, of getting the getting the turntable at exactly the right speed, putting putting a coin on the tone arm when there are, there are skips oh, in the, the record. It's the whole idea of dragging something over a piece of plastic. It just makes me, it just makes, ugh, the hair on my neck just we, We've crazy. talked about vinyl quite a bit. I discovered your label a year or so ago. I started learning to play the shakuhachi. My teacher is Kiku Day, who you know, who's got a piece on one of your records. And I ordered the Frank Denyer record music for shakuhachi played by Yoshikazu Iwamoto, which includes a wonderful piece called Unnamed. It's 45 minutes long, too long for vinyl. This was your third release. How did you choose those first discs that you released in the very beginning? Right. Well, at that stage, obviously, I didn't have and accumulated any money from sales. So I uh, was uh, I was interested in two primarily two kinds of music. One was improvised. The other was contemporary classical composed music. I couldn't think how on earth to produce discs of contemporary classical composed music without paying musicians rehearsal and session time, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas improvisers were perfectly happy for the exposure of a CD to come along and do a session basically without pay. And you pay them by giving them an, uh, a load of CDs when it's produced and they were happy to do that. So most of the early releases, partly for that, simply for that economic reason, uh, were uh, of improvised music. Um, but the Frank Denyer thing was an exception. Um, and he was one of the composers I was sort of thinking about, I would like to do something with him. And I just happened to send him an email saying, you know, so for some future collaboration, is this possible? And he sent an email back saying, well, as it happens, I have these recordings of my Shakuhachi pieces ready um, and haven't got a label for them at the minute. So would you be interested in taking them? And um, so obviously that was possible economically because the recordings were already there and uh and so he was yeah his i released the first five discs all came out at the same time and his was the one uh, composed piece out of uh from the five discs um and since then the sort of um partly because my taste has shifted slightly but uh also because of the economics again because the label has accumulated some money i'm able now to pay musicians to uh, rehearse and uh, record the uh, composed music um, so the the emphasis of the label has shifted to the almost the opposite of that so now 80% of what I release is contemporary classical composed music and I, I still like improvisation and about 20% of it is improvised music but you know the Frank Daniel Shakiachi disc that, that was the first one that it was economically and uh, feasible for me to release on uh, the contemporary classical nature. How long did it take for you to from the beginning to the point where you could afford to hire musicians and and and, and I suppose studios and that actually, kind of thing. I, I paid them very very meager rates to begin with and uh and now i mean i probably st i'm sure i'm still not actually paying them mu rates whether i ought to be saying this i don't know but you know i'm sure so i'm not at that level or or i'm probably paying them an mu rate for a session but we're recording for mu being musicians union musicians union yeah sorry right so i so i'm still not paying brilliantly but the on the other musicians i'm working with value the music that's being done and know it wouldn't be happening if I wasn't doing it with them. So they're prepared to um, do that. Uh, but I suppose in the past, I don't know, 
probably in the past four four or five years, I, I now wouldn't have a recording session where I didn't pay anyone. I just, you know, I, I know I can afford to do it. So it's right to do so sort of thing. And that's Well, you know. it's not the norm that classical musicians get paid for recordings. There are many record labels where you where the musicians actually have to pay for their records to be released. Yeah. And this isn't the major labels, but many of the independent labels, either the musicians work for free or they actually contribute to the costs of the project. Yeah, no, no, I mean, sure, that's true. But on the other hand, I tend to work with the same musicians repeatedly, and I just feel they've contributed massively to the label. Uh, well, success or whatever, you know, the label's ability to survive and get a good reputation. So it, it would feel, I mean, most of them are freelance musicians. There's a couple of them who have teaching posts or whatever and who are slightly more uh, comfortable financially. But basically, you know, their living situation is that they have to get gigs and uh, recording sessions to survive. And so it would be, you know, it wouldn't be right if I was then not paying them. They were spending two days Yes, and and I say that as a freelancer, definitely. (laughs) We we don't work for exposure, do we, Doug? (laughs) No. So the idea of inviting you on the show came after a couple weeks ago. I ordered another one of your CDs, a recording of John Cage's 2-2, and that's the word 2 followed by the number 2. If I understand correctly, these are the John Cage's number of pieces that he did at the end of his career. That's right. And the two meant that it was for two instruments, and the superscript number two meant it was the second piece for two instruments. Am I right? That's absolutely right, yes. yes. So this is a piano piece, and it's played by Mark Noop and Philip Thomas. It's about 128 minutes long on two CDs. I'll link to the episodes we've done about John Cage. We've talked extensively about John Cage. But I just love this kind of music. This We'll talk about Morton Feldman in a minute, but this kind of piano music that just has this organic nature of movement without rigid structures in it. Does that make sense? Yeah, I know completely. The, the Cage number pieces, they were... Well, as soon as I started hearing them, it was a kind of probably a couple of years after he died. They they didn't really come over to the UK until then. But as soon as I started hearing them, I absolutely loved them. And they were one of the um, things that sort of pushed me to um, a kind of re-engage in a really enthusiastic way with music just before the time in which I decided to start the label. So Cage is a sort of fundamental figure. And I think of him as like the kind of grandfather of a lot of the musicians who I'm currently working with, kind of. Um, so, and the, but in particular, that piece, that 2-2, two, two, is one of the pieces that I couldn't quite click with either. Um, recordings I'd heard, I, you know, it wasn't it, it wasn't didn't engage me in the way that most of the other number pieces did. And I wasn't quite sure why. And then my friend, Philip Thomas, one of the pianists, he, he lives quite close to me and um, has appeared on a lot of another time discs now. But he uh, extremely good pianist. He um, did, was doing some research on Cage. He, he uh, teaches at Huddersfield University and as part of his teaching there, he was doing this research on Cage. And he looked for the first time at the score. And he suddenly thought, well, this doesn't look like the recordings I've heard. Um, this mo- looks more like a composition by one of the Vandalweiser composers, this group of composers who you know, really zone in on silence and lo- love very soft uh, dynamics and so on. And, uh, and he thought, well, I'm sure it could be played 
in in that kind of way. And then, then the results would be at least twice as long as any other existing kind of recording. But um, he contacted his friend Mark Noop, another excellent pianist, and they agreed to sort of try it out. And they did a couple of um, performances at universities. And then, you know, we agreed to record it for, for the disc. But it is, it's that it's like, I mean, for me, it's, it's just gorgeous music. It's like luxuriating in a bath for two hours. You just sink yourself into the sounds and uh, just let them wash over you very gently. And it's so it's be, because you had a problem with recorded versions of 2-2 and you happened to know a pianist who listened to your gripe about it and thought was thoughtful enough to look at a score of it, they accidentally discovered that, gee, maybe it has been played wrong and now you've released a, I guess, a definitive recording of the way it should have been performed. No, it's it's um, it says very little about durations. He talks about long. It doesn't give you any time, you know, any timing within the score. But um, and, and there are many ways of performing all of those number yes, pieces. In fact, yes, some of, of them are for any two instruments, for right. example. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, I wouldn't say it is the right and definitive recording, but it is a recording that is markedly different from the the recordings to be knocked till now and for me it gives the music a whole different feel and a whole extra energy and life actually and you like it better than the other two twos oh, yeah very very much too <laughs> yeah. yes, yes I, yeah. I won't go too much into it but i actually witnessed john cage composing a few notes of the piece 14 back when i was living in paris i was the editor slash publisher of a journal about the I Ching. i was very interested in the I Ching, and i was planning to go back to new york around christmas and i wrote john cage and said could i interview you and so I went and talked with him for about a half an hour, and he was working on a piece, and he showed me the process, and here's how I've set up this. This is a rule from here to there, and he yells to his assistant, can you give me a number? And he gets a number, and he plots a, uh, a note and all that. And I must admit that for a while, I kind of saw John Cage as someone with a gimmick, and it's taken a long time for me to appreciate what there is in this music, especially because you can perform these pieces in so many ways, in so many combinations of instruments. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, to be honest, for me, Cage, his, when I was a teenager, I bought and read and absolutely loved his book, Silence. Um, and that was really influential in my, you know, helping me expand the ways in which I could listen to and engage with contemporary music. I was already interested in it, but somehow Silence summarized things in a, in a really clear and, and good way. But for a long time, his music... I mean, I, I would listen to it and be interested in it, but it didn't bowl me over. It was only at the end of his life, in the last two or three years, when he started writing these number pieces, that uh, I absolutely loved them. And, uh, they, you know, as I say, they rekindled my enthusiasm for uh, composed music in a, in a major way. I think they're you know, kind of tremendous pieces. And it's, yeah, yeah. No, I'm 14. It's worth-, it's, it's worth pointing out that Frank Denyer, in addition to being a composer, is also a performer, and he performs with the Barton Workshop, which has been performing Cage Works for a very long time, and that recorded either four or five very excellent re- uh, records of the number pieces yeah, that's, for a German label. That's Is right. That that's right. Yeah. 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 So you mentioned earlier the Vondelweiser composers, and this is an interesting thing. You have a six-CD box set of music in, around, or near that of the composers in the Vondelweiser Collective. Mm -hmm. And so the Vondelweiser composers, they're into silence, not absolute silence, but I'm almost thinking as little music as possible. Is that a way of saying it? Yes, that would be fair enough, I think. Yes, yes. 
what what prompted you to release six records? Had you recorded all six CDs separately and then combined them in a box set, or was it a, a, a large project? It was a long project. Um, over about two years, I I recorded a lot of uh, Van der Weyden music with different groups of musicians and um, gradually selected from out of all those recordings in uh, you know the pieces I thought were worth releasing. But um, that was. In a way, that was the moment at which I shifted from uh, a, an imp releasing in more improvised music to releasing more classical stuff. But it, it, the Vandalweiser box set, it's called Vandalweiser und so weiter, which means Vandalweiser and so on. Um, and the and so on was important because it wasn't just presenting the work of the Vandalweiser composers. There's already a Vandalweiser label that does that. But what I was doing was I was taking some musicians who are more from an improvising background and presenting them with the Vandalweiser scores and saying, look, what, what would you do with these? So it was a kind of, um, it was a spin on Vandalweiser or you can have a slightly hybrid take between improvisation and uh, pure Vandalweiser, as it were. Um, and uh, it was actually phenomenally successful. I, you know, a big six disc box set at that stage, I thought, well, this could possibly bankrupt the label, but it's worth trying. But actually, it sold out very quickly, and I had to have it repressed. It was it was one of the most successful things. It just so happened to hit at exactly the right time when there were a lot of people around the place interested in Vandalweiser music. Um, so it was it was very successful. But um, I think what you know, the Vandalweiser composers they they started in the 1990s, so they've been around a long time, and they they were very much coming off the back of Lake Cage. So he was very influential for all of them. Uh, and they, you know, in a way, what they're saying is, so what next? What can music do next after after Cage? Um, and But some of them have are still doing music that's very similar to what they were doing in the mid-90s. They, you know, 20 odd years later, they're still doing something that's recognizably the same. But that's pretty difficult for most musicians to do. And others have moved on um, to do some very very interesting things but in, in you know they're just stylistically quite different so it's it's not quite right anymore to say Vandalweiser and silence uh is you know the era Vandalweiser is silence it's it's a lot more and a lot different it's where it started that's out. where it started yeah. out uh and I suppose the Vandalweiser composer who has influenced me most um is Jörg Frey a uh, Swiss composer who is, in a way, he's the most classical of the Vandalweiser composers. He's, he, a lot of his music uses canons and forms like this in very slow and simple ways. He, he calls them loose canons, which is a lovely phrase, and the musicians are allowed to <laughs> sort of play with them and slightly adapt them as they develop them. Um, and uh, and I've done a lot of discs with, with Jörg, whereas I feel now there was that sort of midpoint where, where Vandalweiser was crucial, which sort of shifted me away from uh, a focus on improvisation more towards the contemporary classical thing. And now I've, I've gone along with some of the Vandalweiser composers on from that, but I've become far more interested in things like, you know, melody and uh, uh, harmony and things like that, which for a long time... The, I, I the actual elements of music that the avant-garde would long push aside, say we don't need no harmony. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and I've suddenly become interested in it. And obviously my interest is inflected by uh, kind of decades of listening to experimental stuff. So I'm not, you know, I'm not going to listen to anything that's sort of just kind of a bland tune or whatever. But um, I, I'm interested in music that does re-engage with melody and harmony in, in new and interesting ways, which is very much what your phrase music does. But also now I'm, you know, I'm interested in other composers who, who would be aware of the Vandalweiser composers, but definitely aren't Vandalweiser. They're, you know, they're more robust musically and so on. And that's, so that's, yeah, uh, I... 
I, I discovered Jörg Frey on um, Andy Lee's recordings for Irritable Hedgehog. That's right. And it was just this weekend, actually, that I was looking up on Apple Music to see what there was. And it turns out that Edition Vondelweiser Records is now streaming on Apple Music. Oh, they are, are they? I, now, they? you and I were discussing this when we spoke a week or so ago about the fact that you're only selling CDs. You said you were going to Bandcamp soon, and, and I said you should at least sell on the iTunes store to get more exposure. Mm -hmm. But for a label like you, that recording of 2-2 is two tracks of music for two hours, for more than two hours, and you would get paid 0 0.013 <laughs> cents for each CD worth of music that someone listens yeah. to. Um, yeah. I don't see how the edition of Vondervoiser Records can do this. I listened to a, a Jörg Frey recording of string quartets. There were two yeah. pieces on, on the album. There is no business model for this for classical music, no. is there? No. And I say classical in air quotes because yeah, yeah. You're, the music you're releasing could still fit in the classical niche genre. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, abs absolutely. I mean, I think if I was trying to make a living from it, all these things would be far more pressing and um, it would be very difficult and probably quite depressing because I don't think there is a model that would work. I mean, I'm in a you know, very lucky position that having worked in television for a long time, I've got savings, my children have left home, I've paid for my house, I don't have to earn much money now to survive. So that means I can, um, I mean, I'm not rich, so I, I've got, the label's got to break even, but it doesn't have to do any more than that. And it's not Ah, uh, yes, but up. Brexit is coming, so you well, have to build up the ramparts and there. stock up on food and yes. <laughs> Well, th well, think about it. This could be a problem for you to ship your CDs no, overseas. I know. I know. I, I'm and, not thinking and, about it. I'm digging my head. Okay, let's not think about it. <laughs> okay, well, let's talk about Morton Feldman because you have a box set of six CDs coming out in September. Five, five, CDs, five CDs. Yeah. Of piano works played by Philip Thomas. Yeah. Coincidentally, in a Facebook group about Harold Budd that I follow. Someone posted something today. This is from The Wire in January 1907, the magazine The Wire. And what they do is they would interview people and they would play music for them that they didn't, and they wouldn't tell them what it was and they would have to guess. So Harold Budd says, beautiful piece. I haven't a clue what it was. And the interviewer says it was composed in 1981. It's an extract from a 73-minute piece. And Budd says, I imagine it would be Morton Feldman. Triadic memories, beautiful. And so then he says, he was asked, were you influenced by Feldman? He says, yes, when I was a proper American avant-garde composer, I scandalously ripped him off. I was originally attached to the notions and philosophy of John Cage. From that, I spun off to Feldman, who seemed less doctrinaire and more interested in the potential of what sound can actually do to your state of mind and where you are and how you get through the world. And I find that lovely. When I discovered Feldman, I kind of felt the same thing. And you were talking before about melody and harmony, and in particular, these long, late works of Feldman's with these melodic fragments that just come and go. I think it's great that you're doing a box set of Feldman. So which which of the pieces are going to be in it? Are, are these the longer works, the shorter works? It's almost almost all of his piano music that's available beyond a few uh, teenage fragments, which didn't seem to be... Yeah. worth including as well but to be honest uh, philip thomas did all the, the research of it he's very kind of diligent and uh, far more so than me and he's from an academic background so he went to um the sacher institute in um basel and looked at the uh compared the original manuscripts with the published editions and things like that and saw various inconsistencies and worked out what he thought it should be and he i mean this was an ongoing research project for him as well as you know he's someone who's been playing feldman 
for 25 years since more or less he started as a uh, playing piano as an adult sort of thing he's he's been playing it um so uh it was here i left it to him because obviously we know each other really really well now i just left it to him in terms of uh, deciding exactly what to include and how to approach it and so on and then uh, once we'd recorded or we'd recorded over a period of about a year in six sessions uh recorded all the music and uh, then we had a sort of long kind of you know two or three weeks of deciding exactly what order the pieces should be in because that that kind of isn't completely clear we didn't want it to be completely chronological um but so it, yes in answer to your question it includes early pieces late pieces middle pieces and <laughs> whatever whatever it's sort of I mean, there's something about those works like triadic memories and for yeah. benita marcus that are just that they I, I don't know why feldman isn't better known outside of the avant-garde I think he is becoming more so, and I think in a way that would have surprised him and uh, would have surprised a lot of people. There's now, you know, recordings of his music by uh, kind of major mainstream pianists. They suddenly uh, kind of started uh, playing him. So I think there's a way in which uh, he's you know, becoming part of the canon um, in a way that, you know, Cage is conceptually. People understand that Cage was important, but they still don't really like his music in general. Very and much. Cage wrote a lot of books, too. Yeah. Okay. And I think the books were as influential yeah, as the yeah, music. Absolutely. What, what did Feldman write? There was a book of his collected writings. There are some writings about art, essentially. Yeah, I actually don't like Feldman's writing. I feel he, and I, I, mean, I get the impression I wouldn't have liked him as a man. I mean, Cage uh, would have been tricksy in some ways, but I, everyone seems to be taught very warmly about him. He's, you know, uh, yeah, a good, extremely person. friendly person. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. Whereas I think Feldman had darker sides to him, which I wouldn't want to touch. And for me, they're evident in his writing. A, a lot of it comes over as quite, I don't know, I think basically pretentious and competitive and all these things which um so i so i tend not to read his stuff i'd read it once but i wouldn't go back to it whereas pages stuff i will always going back and getting it off the shelf and dipping in and enjoying it again um so and in terms of writing and uh personality i'm i'm a bit down on feldman but with this shift in my taste to, um as we were saying earlier more and more towards melody and harmony feldman who i've always liked but his stuff is figuring more and more and that's why when philip came to me and said look i you know i feel i've got to come to terms with feldman once and for all and perhaps I need to get it out of my system by recording everything and then are you interested i said yes certainly so it fits in with where my taste going as well so that's what we did so where do you go next uh, you're you're a David fighting the Goliath of the huge recording industry. <laughs> the streaming makes no sense. Yeah. Uh, as long as long as all you're looking to do is break even and not try and do things just to make money, there's a certain amount of integrity in what you're doing. And this is something that's not always the case with other record labels. I, I certainly hope that's how people see it, that, it's, that it is um, driven by integrity rather than, you know, I mean, if it was driven by commercial gain, it's a huge failure because I don't, I can't <laughs> pay myself anything, just do the work and get nothing from it sort of thing. But uh, yes, I mean, I, I, as, as long as there's a few people out there and obviously the beauty of the internet is that you know I, I sell as many discs to japan as i do to the uk it's it's the kind of that enables you to do that um so as long as there are people dotted around the world who are interested in this stuff uh that you know i i can carry on doing it and i see my role because all the 
promotional and um, you know salesman side of running a label. I, I'm just hopeless at that. It's just not my personality. So I, I've given up even attempting to do it. I see my role as making available the music that I love and, and people can seek it out and find it. And, you know, uh, word of mouth in this tiny corner of the world goes a long way. People say, oh, have you heard the recording on another tambo? You ought to check that label out. And so somebody comes and orders some discs and, you know, it, it kind of it kind of works to small level. It never uh, I mean, I, I would never be able to do any kind of label that was commercially successful because I'm just not driven in that kind of way. Simon, thank you very much for joining us. You said earlier that you got thunderstorms where you are, so I hope the rest of your day is is enjoyable. As you listen to that sort of cagey and sound around you and how the thunder and the lightning come in and the rain. Music is all around us, if only we have ears, he said, yes, and he's right. <laughs> It's time now to tell you about our next tracks. Kirk, what have you got for this week? There has been an interesting re-release. came out just a week ago, Brian Eno's Apollo Atmospheres and Soundtracks. And there are a couple of things interesting about it. This is a record that I never really paid a lot of attention to when it first came out. The new edition has a remastering of the original tracks and the three musicians who worked on it, Brian Eno, Daniel Lanois, and Brian's brother, Roger Eno, got together and wrote about 42 minutes of new tracks in the same spirit. So the first disc is the original music and the second is the new stuff. What I find really interesting is that Brian Eno was on TV giving an interview here talking about this record, and he doesn't generally promote records like this. What, like on a morning show or something, on a breakfast show? Uh, or? On, a, on a Sunday morning show that's basically politics, but at the end of the show, in this case was kind of in the middle, but usually at the end of the show, the person, Andrew Marr on the BBC, has a singer or an actor or something in the arts for a couple of minutes. And he went to Brian Eno's studio, and there was a bit of an interview, and, and Eno doesn't do that generally doesn't, and, and even Peter Chilvers, who works with Brian Eno, has been on the podcast a couple of times, said Eno doesn't like to talk about his old work. But here, he's clearly taking some old work and not only remastering it, but redoing it. This, of course, corresponds with the 50th anniversary of Apollo 11, which has been on the news and everyone's been talking about it. The music on this record was used as a soundtrack for a documentary called For All Mankind, which happened to have been the 99-cent rental of the week last week on the iTunes store. It's a conspiracy. It is, but there's a confluence of things going on. In any case, yeah, I've listened... I'm, that's what I meant. You meant a confluence, not contrail. <laughs> I've listened to it a couple of times, but I haven't really had time to pay attention to it. I bought the extended edition, limited edition number 1923 out of 12,000 with the 24-page hardcover book with some extra liner notes and photos. And It's an interesting record. It doesn't have the coherence of... Brian Eno's long works because it's little bits and pieces, but there is a tone that I like. And this idea of taking the same tone with the same musicians and doing something, you know, 20 years later, uh, I find this really 30 years later, in fact, I find this intriguing. Doug, what have you got? Well, when I knew we were going to talk to a, an avant garde um, record label uh, person, <laughs> I thought, well, I'm not really into avant-garde that much. And you recommended I listen to Feldman, and I did. But the only, the closest thing I come, that I like that is avant-garde is Captain Beefheart. And the album I thought I should listen to is Trout Mask Replica, which is pretty much regarded as a, as a classic. Unfortunately, it's not streaming right now. And I have a CD copy of it, but it's in the closet somewhere. So I'm going to have to go digging around for it. But um, it's still a fascinating record. It's a double album that came out, I think, in 1967. It was produced by Frank Zappa. But really, he just let 
Captain Beefheart, whose real name is uh, is Don Van Vliet, um, he just let him do whatever he wanted to do. So what he wanted to do was he got these five musicians together and they rehearsed for about eight months. And what they did was they transcribed the music in Don Van Vliet's head and he would let them know what the melodies were by whistling or banging like melodies out on the piano, which he did not know how to play. And the musicians figured out what he wanted the songs to sound like. And this is pretty much how he always worked. And they would learn to play it a certain way, even though they may have improvised some parts. Whenever they played the song again, it was always trying to do it the exact same way with the improvisational parts. And a lot of people have equated this to like a classical form. Um, once the you know once the the thing is hardened as a as a as a song, it stays that way, even though it's this bizarre. Well, it's talking about confluences. Don Van Vliet as Captain Beefheart incorporated avant-garde art music, R and B, blues. He had a, a singing voice that could range over I think four or five octaves if he wanted it to. Um, it's just an amazing record and. Um, I'm 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 bummed that it's not available to stream right now. There are other Captain Beefheart albums out. One I like a lot is Dock at the Radar Station, but that's that's a relatively modern record. Trout Mask Replica is the one to listen to to try to figure out what the heck is this guy doing with music. But as as bizarre as the music is, it's still a, a challenge and fun to listen to. So that's my next track. This was episode number 155 of The Next Track. Thank you very much for listening. Your comments are welcome. You can start or join a conversation on this episode's show page at our website. You'll also find links to some of the things we talked about in the show notes for this episode. Just visit thenexttrack.com. If you like the show, we'd appreciate it if you gave us a rating or a review wherever you get your podcasts. And if you can't leave a review, recommend us to your family, your friends, your coworkers, your fellow bus riders. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks again. We'll talk to you next time.